The Athletic. The Athletic Women's Football Podcast is proudly partnered with Now. With a Now Sports membership, you can watch the biggest moments from the Women's Super League live. Find out more at nowtv.com. Their warning. They have had their warning. Here's Lucy Bronze. That is remarkable from Arsenal. Kirby with the ball up to oh, Hello and welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast in partnership with Now. Coming up. Oh, when the Saints go marching on. Leicester set Spurs back on their heels. And a successful family day out for the Solskjaers. It's Kate Borsay here with Lindsay Hooper and former Lioness Chelsea and Arsenal star Katie Chapman. How are you, Katie? I'm very well, thank you. It's good to see you, Katie. And we we know what to do with this scheduling because it's FA Cup weekend and you are Mrs. FA Cup. You won it a record 10 times. I cannot believe this. I saw it in our notes. You won your first one, age 14. How does that even happen? It was a bit of a whirlwind, actually, because I obviously didn't start playing football till I was 11. And then to win an FA Cup when I was 14 was was quite <laughs> crazy. Uh, but yeah, I got given the opportunity at 14, yeah, to, to play in the senior team at Millwall Inesses. That is wow. an incredible story, by the way, for anyone listening with nieces, nephews, granddaughters, daughters, sons, to start playing football at the age of 11 and then find yourself winning an FA Cup at the age of 14 has to go down as one of the most speedy pathways into success how many minutes how many minutes did you play in that final I think I played most of it if not all of it I played I think it was I think I played left side of a back three which was even more funny (laughs) (laughs) it's absolutely crazy I've got a 12 year old daughter and I can't imagine her coming home with an FA Cup or even seeing that happen it's a wonderful story and we're really glad that you've joined us to go through the action plenty to talk about we'll touch on some of the games but we've also got some major bits of news to discuss as well some of it connected to the FA Cup and some of it not Mm. Uh, well, if it's depressing you as much as me that by the age of 14, Katie Chapman had already put us to shame, <laughs> let's move on. Uh, this weekend, it was the fourth round where the WSL teams entered the competition and there were 32 sides wanting to move one step closer to that FA Cup trophy. Trouble for London City, little to Miedemar, surely. Come through to Morris. The calmest of finishes. Low ball in. and into the back of the net. What a smart finish by the Norwegian. We'll go forward and look for Sophie Howard. It's Howard. That's clever. That's brilliant. Well, the biggest upset of the weekend came from third-tier Southampton FC women who beat championship side Bristol City 1-0 at St Mary's Stadium. Bristol hit the woodwork twice and forced a save on the line from the Saints' Millie Mott close to the full-time whistle. It was a lot of drama. But in the first minute of extra time, Southampton's Ella Morris scored, playing a bouncing ball into the far corner. Bristol's Jessica Woolley could have equalised, but she sent her penalty over the crossbar and Southampton took the 1-0 win. Great game this one, Katie. I don't know how much you saw of it, but it's always a story, isn't it, when a third-tier side beats a second-tier side, but also the golfing resource between two clubs, Bristol being a full-time side and obviously Southampton not. 
Yeah, I think that's the magic of the FA Cup, isn't it? You know, anything can happen and that's what you look for, don't you? You want the, the smaller clubs to beat the bigger clubs and knock them out. I think that, that, you know, makes it even more special. And these are the competitions they get an opportunity to play, the, you know, the bigger sides, the top teams and stuff like that and see where they pair w- with that. But as you say that, I mean, when I was at Arsenal, we won Champions League. It was the same situation. You know, Umia were full-time professionals. We weren't, you know, it's, I think it's, it depends. 11 v 11, isn't it, at the end of the day? And it's how much you want to win that game of football. You'll know Marianne Spacey, I'm sure, very well, and the job that she's doing at Southampton. They're on a really good run at the minute, nine consecutive wins. Do you think that she could go on to be one of the top managers in the future? Yeah, I know she's been in the game, you know, a long, long time, hasn't she? She's been a top professional and player. I mean, I experienced her management uh, as a manager player, actually, at Fulham when I was there, the season that, that you know, we, we became semi-professional again. So, you know, she's a great person. She's always wanted to do well. She's always had a big impact in the game. So, you know, I hope she does. Well, speaking of Marianne Spacey, we chatted to her before the show to find out what it was like from a Southampton FC women point of view. Southampton FC women's manager Marianne Spacey-Kale, who herself has 91 caps for England, having also played for Arsenal and Fulham previously. Marianne, welcome along to the show. And first of all, congratulations. What has the reaction been like this week from the dressing room? Thank you for the congratulations. It was a really good day on Sunday. So far this week, there's been quite a bit of coverage over the last couple of days, which is brilliant because it's just, again, raising awareness to our fantastic community and the and around the club of what the what the journey we're on so there's been a lot more a lot of interest a lot of conversations and a lot of smiles which is really important it's important to get wins like this after a lot of hard work Marianne and there's a long-term project going on at the club I know we'll we'll talk about that in just a few moments time but I do just want to delight in some of your players first of all and give them some well-earned congratulations I love Kayla Rendell your goalkeeper's performance I thought she was absolutely excellent made some brilliant brilliant saves under a lot of pressure really from Bristol but tell us a bit about Millie Mott who basically saved that ball off the line an excellent clearance from her and Ella Morris who scored the goal just so we can get some insight into both those players yeah, uh, all three of them, Kayla, Millie and Ella, have come through our pathway. They've been at our, they were at our Centre of Excellence into our regional talent club. So I've been at the club from sort of like 12, 11, 12 years of age. And that's synonymous with what Southampton do, isn't it? They develop talent and, and produce the talent to perform in the first team. So, yeah, they're all really good characters. Kayla is a very calm and composed goalkeeper which helps especially being the last line of defense both Ella and Millie have got you know real unique skills got different skill sets from each other but are very much um, they're both very uh, squad orientated and all all of them work tremendously hard the whole squad worked tremendously hard in training and I think that really showed on Sunday when you know a lot of a lot of uh, people or or outside people would think going into extra time against full time championship outfit, then you know that might be when we struggled. But credit to the players, they they maintained really good, strong physical capabilities throughout the hundred and I think something like one hundred and twenty nine minutes in the end. Wow, yeah, it was. I'm sure that's taken it out of them for this week. You're probably having to beat the stick a little bit more if you wanted to try and get something out of them after that performance. But let's talk about Southampton and the pathway, because that's how you mentioned that these players came through. And for those that don't know, what is it that the football club are doing to invest in the women's side at the moment? We saw 
over 3,300 spectators at the stadium at St Mary's for this one. And the aim is for the club to be a WSL side for 2023-24. So what has been going on behind the scenes in terms of investment and structure? Because you've been there for some time now. Yeah, I joined in 2018. Um, that was when Southampton first applied for the for the license into the championship. Um, we were unfortunate not to get one that year, but it, but the you know if you spin it into a positive, it gave gave us a chance to really get some structure, some infrastructure right within the club. There's always been a really strong youth development there with the Centre of Excellence Hampshire Centre of Excellence then being taken over by the club. So we knew that we had a, a talent pool coming through. We just had to then get the next bit of the structure right. And, you know, we said like the, when I came in in 2018, it was great because the club were very um, supportive of like lots of ideas and lots of things we wanted to do and put the strategy into place. Obviously, that strategy now has had to be tweaked after two years of COVID. But we're in, like myself, Matt Crocker, director of football, are, are talking like weekly about what we're doing with the strategy, our goal trees and what we're trying to achieve. So, you know, we've got under 10s all the way up to the first team now. We've got an RTC Academy, which is 16s coming up into the first team age group. So it's took a couple of things where we, you know, we might have got it not quite right in one in a couple of years, but we're now in a place where we think, you know, we've had the opportunity to grow and have the right pathway for us but also with the first team the results and the performances it's it becomes really aspirational for those young players they you know a lot of them were at the stadium on Sunday and they can see what it looks like and where they want to be as well in the next few years for themselves. Have you had to tweak that target at all Marianne because otherwise it would mean back-to-back promotions wouldn't it? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, yes, we definitely had to tweak it because the first year was in COVID was null and voided, which was, you know, with the pandemic, it had to be done and it was keeping people safe. So first things first, that's the most important thing. The second year we applied for the upward club movement when we were successful. So coming into tier three for for this season and, you know, we're, we're in a we're in a good place at the moment. We're we're uh, playing catch up with Ipswich and Oxford in the league so we knew that this this league was going to be a tough league big jump from tier four into tier three so we've had to tweak the strategy because of the two years kind of lost I guess because it's not just although we got the upward club movement you've all, you also lost two years on the pitch which was at that development so we're kind of back into a place now where we're going, right, what's the next bit? How can we, what parts can we kind of fast track? Which pits are we just making sure that we get completely right before we push on again? So what do we need to see then? If we're talking about a free-flowing and sustainable path from tier three to tier two and then up to tier one, it feels like there's a bit of a juncture there at the moment between three and two. And maybe maybe there needs to be a bit more work there it's obviously all a work in progress but what would you like to see Marianne? I think you know we've talked about our strategy what is the strategy for the league what are we planning what's the plan for this year next year the year after you know it can't I think we have to ensure that there is a there's forward thinking and not just resting on what what's always happened you know the game like we've just said the game is absolutely growing still at a, at a fast pace and the number of clubs now that are being invested in by their parent men's clubs is growing so i think to be able to have sort of like freer movement between the leagues would be key and the numbers of teams that can go up and maybe extending the league ahead you know the championship to 
to a greater number to ensure that the, the quality is there. Young English talent are playing in, you know, week in, week out in a competitive league. And it just, again, it's like the 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 structure of tier three moving into into the championship, you know, just let's bed down a real strong strategy that gives every club that's playing in those leagues some a vision of it 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 can be done and there is opportunities and we're sort of breaking this ceiling of how you can get between the two leagues. So for me, the the strategy would be key. Real support from you know both the the communication between the league and the FA, which is really a lot better now than it than probably it has been in previous years. So I think that's something that is is very important to both to the FA and to the league is that they see this progression of the league structure to ensure that the the clubs are and are supported for the level that they want to be at. Back to the cup competition, because this week we saw the announcement from the FA that the FA Cup prize money is set to increase in a couple of seasons time. There was some information missing there in terms of figures. I think there's a lot of appetite from women's football fans to know what that meant, how it's been backed up in terms <laughs> Show me the money. <laughs> yeah. And, and what I'm going to talk to you about to try and get a bit of an idea of this, Marianne, is the win that you've just had what tangibly does that look like and mean for the club now? And what could it look like had you done this in a couple of years' time? Yeah, I think this is always, and I always go back to um, like to what's relative in terms of, of prize money and what's, you know, we can't say have it on par because of revenue and commercial opportunities. But I think for me, what's important is that clubs who are participating in the FA Cup are not out of pocket to be part of this historical competition, this magical competition. So, you know, whatever, you know, we're, we're fortunate that the, I say fortunate, we're part of a club that are very forward thinking and want to, want to, you know, we're integral to the club and the football division, but also, you know, the club in general. So the support we had on Sunday to play at St. Mary's, the, it was a, it was a, it was a match day. It wasn't a women's match day. It wasn't the men's match day. It was a match day. And everything that we had was, it was around the day with the Saints brass were there, you know, the mascots were there and it was, it was just set up as a match day. So for us, it's, you know, that would have cost us money. It would have cost the club money, but the reward is, is maybe a little bit, like you said, there's the tangible of having cash in your hand, but then there's also the growth of the game and the growth of us within the community, within the, the football community nationwide as well. So for us, the, the important bit is that clubs are not out of pocket. They can sustain their season. Uh, some clubs might have crowdfunded. For to, they've got through to the next round and they've crowdfunded for the next round. So they're taking money from what would be the rest of the season to be able to play in one game. So again, relative to commercial, relative to the growth, but let's not have teams out of pocket and struggling because they can't fulfil league fixtures because they've had to pay out for the FA Cup. Yeah, the least you can ask for is that a club is paid in prize money what it takes for them to be part of that fixture Let's finish on your next FA Cup opponents, Ipswich Town, ironically, who are the only team that you've lost to in the league this season. They sit at the top of tier three. What are you thinking about, Marianne, for this game? And if you make it through, just humour us, which WSL team potentially would you like to play against? (laughs) Who would be the big one for you if you make it through past Ipswich? 
yeah, I think it's really important what the last statement there of if we make it through because the, you know, this indulge is me though. Come on. <laughs> um, I think for us, we've got to, we've got to look at the next game, Ipswich, and like you said, they're the only team that have beaten us in the league. Uh, we're away. They're going to have a very vocal crowd, and you know their their supporters are, are you know travelled up to Newcastle to support them at the weekend. So we know that it's going to be a real test, and with them having beaten us in the last game, then you know the edge is slightly with them. If we were to get through, you you get who you get, don't you? And oh, Marianne, come on! Will, a lot of people will say, "Would you want Arsenal?" Because that's or my Chelsea answer. or Manchester um, United. Yeah, I think you you just want to. Yeah, any of them would be a great call <laughs> at home. At home. Yeah, okay. at home. At home. Yeah, at home. A home draw against any of them, if we get through. <laughs> well, thank you so much for speaking to us. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Southampton FC's women's manager Marianne Spacey Kale here speaking to us on the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. That was us speaking to Southampton FC women's manager and former Lioness Marianne Spacey Kale. Should say her full name. We both did that. It's because we've known Marianne for a while. That I'm, I'm just Marianne Spacey all the time. Two other sides from Tier 3 also made it through to the next round. West Brom beat Tier 4 side Exeter 4-2 on penalties. And Ipswich Town, who we've already just heard, will be facing Southampton in the next round. They won against fourth tier side Newcastle Ladies, thanks to a goal in the third minute by Lucy O'Brien. That will have made the 600 mile round trip for the away supporters worth it. Blimey. Well, from Newcastle, let's move south to the depths of Somerset, where tier three Bridgewater took on Manchester United. The game turned a few heads as it featured a United senior debut for Karna Solskjaer. She's the daughter of former United legend and manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Her dad and mum watched as she came on in the 87th minute. United won the game 2-1 thanks to an own goal from Charlotte Buxton and a shot from the edge of the box by Ella Toon that bounced off the far post and into the goal. There's a lot about Karna Solskjaer here, Katie. Is there much of this in the women's game that that we miss, where there's players that are daughters of former professionals coming into the game and doing really well? Yeah, I think so. I think it's not really heard of, is it? And I think it's something, you know, men usually don't see as their daughters playing football, do they? And I think that's all changed, isn't it, over the years, you know, that, you know, you have a daughter now, they can now play football and follow in your footsteps, where that was never a thing. And I think, you know, it's really nice to hear that. It's really nice to hear. I mean, the only person I knew about was John Terry, and he's, you know, children playing. His daughter used to play at Chelsea. So mm. that was the first I was ever heard of that connection. Tash Dowie is the only example that I can think of, but she's niece rather than daughter. Yeah. There will be more, I'm convinced of it. Uh, Well, you didn't need a crystal ball to guess United's result, but for the team one below them in the WSL Spurs, something like that might have come in handy. Uh, Spurs went ahead in the second half as Jessica Naz fought off the Leicester City defence to put in a cross for Angela Addison to slide and tap in. But with eight minutes to go, Leicester's Shannon O'Brien equalised from outside the box and in extra time, the Foxes secured a 3-1 win thanks to Sophie Howard's lob and Esme de Graaf capitalising on a defensive error. I don't think anyone saw this. Yeah, the result comes after Spurs suffered their first WSL defeat since November. That sounds extreme, but there isn't a huge number of games that's happened since then. But they did that, by the way, losing for that first time to Manchester United last week. I think Spurs will be 
disappointed with defensive errors. They actually had the bulk of the better play, certainly for most of the game, Katie. And they've they've got stuck in this rut, haven't they, of not being able to hold on to a lead, of not being able to see it through until the end. Yeah, it's tough sometimes. I mean, they've had a good run and they've been doing really, really well. I think you've done, they've done well this season with the progress they've made within the team and the club. It's difficult, isn't it? You know, you look at teams and they can have as much possession as they like during games and stuff like that. If you're not scoring goals or you're not, you know, making things happen, you know, the chances of you winning the game are, are quite low. And and I think with it, you go through those periods of lulls, don't you, sometimes within games where you don't quite, you know, perform or you don't quite get the result. It doesn't mean the end of the world. Sometimes people look at results and they're like, oh my God, you know, it's going to go down here from now. And it's not, It's sometimes that happens. You have to have a blip, you know, to, to progress and move forward. I'm sure for Leicester's confidence, they'll be taking that and the bounce to give them in WSL as well from that. Tottenham may have been off the mark, but Chelsea were right on form on Saturday (laughs) as they faced Aston Villa in another WSL matchup. So yeah, Guru Wrighton turned and shot in the blink of an eye to give Chelsea the lead before earning them a penalty that Penilla Harder converted. Wrighton made it three for the away side with a one-touch effort. Villa managed a consolation penalty after Neve Charles knocked over Ramona Petzelberger, uh, scoring from the spot there. What did you make of Chelsea's performance in this one, Katie? I thought they did what they needed to do. I think, you know, they've had a, a lot of games, you know, not the best results so far this year. But they haven't played badly. There's a situation where I think, you know, they haven't really played badly. They've created so many chances in games. They're just not clinical enough to finish them. They've obviously got players missing, injuries, uh, quite a small squad of players that, that, that they've got at the moment. But, you know, they're getting results. They got the result they needed. Let's talk about Villa. Jill Scott making her debut for Villa in this one. And on the bench for them, new signing Rachel Corsi, Scotland captain, has moved from the NWSL's Kansas City. She used to play, of course, at Notts County and Birmingham City, but a great scoop for Villa, I think. You know, both those players as well. And because of their situation, Katie, I think it's fair to say they've made full use of this January window, Villa, and signed some signed some real experience there and, you know, still very, very good quality players. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably what they needed to bring in a bit of experience. You know, they've conceded a lot of goals within the league. So probably bringing in like a defender. Jill Scott's got so much energy still at 34. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and she just she brings a lot to the game. Do you know, she's a great person as well. So she bring a great personality and atmosphere as well to to the team. And I'm sure she would g them up to do you know to do well and help her younger peers within the team. You know, use her experience to do that. It's all that cross country running that she used to do. She's got all a of tank that in terms she drinks. of an engine. All the coffee as well. Yeah, <laughs> she's got her own coffee shop. I think I think she drinks most of the profits, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah possibly. Well, Chelsea were coming off the back of a 2-0 win over West Ham in the midweek rescheduled WSL game. Beth England and Erin Cuthbert scoring in that one. Also off the back of a midweek WSL win were Arsenal, inspired by Beth Mead's wonderful curling free kick in their 2-1 win over Brighton. In this FA Cup game, the Gunners managed just the one goal against London City Lionesses. Kim Little capitalised on a defensive error, drove into the box with energy and hashtag fed the Viv, who slotted it into the far corner for a 1-0 win. Katie, I expected so much more from Arsenal in this. You know, they're at a sticky point in their season, it's fair to say, and they really need to be winning a lot more convincingly than this. Did they just do what they had to do or is there an issue here? I think it's a hard one, isn't it? I think they've got, you know... 
a lot of games, you know, when you have a long run of games, you know, you're playing Sunday, midweek, Sunday, you know, it, sometimes it catches up on you. But I think they do need to be better. I think people are expecting a lot more from Arsenal as well hmm. um, within the games they're playing. It was playing. just but dull, to be honest them, with you. They're managing one. to get results, aren't they? And I think football is based on results, right? Not everyone remembers the performance. They remember the results. So I think as long as they keep getting the results. But also they were playing Mill City Lion Lesses. Come on. They wouldn't have given that <laughs> game as well. They wouldn't have made it Let's easy Let's give credit. <laughs> they wouldn't have made it easy for them. Coming from, from Mill myself, they wouldn't have made it easy. They'd have been really tough to beat. Moving on, and in the other FA Cup results, Georgia Stanway scored a hat-trick to break the Manchester City club scoring record. 64 goals for her, that's two ahead of Nikita Paris, and it helped City to their 8-0 win over Nottingham Forest. Uh, Birmingham City scraped through with an extra-time winner for a 2-1 victory against championship side Sunderland. Reading gave up a two-goal lead, but still managed to beat Brighton 3-2. By the skin. Elsewhere, Huddersfield Town had a record attendance of just over 1,000 100 fans to see them lose 4-0 to Everton thanks to some acrobatics from Claire Emsley. West Ham beat Sheffield United 4-1 and Coventry United survived by the skin of their teeth winning 4-2 on penalties against tier four side Billericay. Could have been an upset, couldn't it? Uh, in the championship battle, Durham beat Blackburn Ladies 3-1 and there were 6-0 wins for Liverpool and Charlton over Lincoln and Plymouth. The draw for the fifth round has been made. We've got a Manchester derby, Katie, in this on our hands. Uh, 27th of February, Manchester United play Man City. We've got holders Chelsea playing Leicester and championship leaders Liverpool host WSL leaders Arsenal. Two sides in Tier 3 are included. Ipswich Town and Southampton play each other. West Brom face Coventry United. Plus it's Durham against Birmingham, Reading against West Ham and Charlton face Everton. In terms of pick of the tie, there this Manchester derby I know that we get that twice a season anyway in WSL but we're never going to get bored of that no absolutely not I think they play each other as well don't they in the league before before the actual FA Cup game yeah, also, yeah. so that'd be interesting yeah. to see what the result comes out of that do we call that one a dress rehearsal or is it a bigger game than that <laughs> Well, I mean, they're going for the league as well, aren't they, really? You know, people are still fighting because I feel feel like anything can happen still within that top section, you know, and they all seem to be playing each other soon within that. Mm. So it'd be interesting to see what results are. But I think FA Cup, you know, is a completely different game to league games as well, you know, because it is a knockout. You know, you have to perform on the day and you have to get the result on the day, otherwise you're out. And, you know, everyone wants to play in an FA Cup. I mean, I loved every single one that I played in and everyone felt, you know, like it was the first one. It's, it's no wonder you love them. You won 10 of them. You're going to enjoy them, aren't you? <laughs> people she ask, do you early. get bored of the FA Cup? And the answer to that is no. Do you, know you get really... bored of getting a trophy? Do you know what's really good is that we are going to see tier three opposition. Obviously, we spoke to Marianne Spacey earlier, but, you know, with that Ipswich and Southampton tie, we're going to see tier three opposition in the quarterfinals. So I think that is pretty exciting as well. You know, it's going the same way as well, isn't it? As the men's, you know, seeing them teams progress. Up to, yeah, as you say, quarterfinals. Like, that's great. Yeah, for them as well. The FA have also said that they are going to increase the prize money next season after protests this weekend. You saw people on 51 Minutes to represent 51 years since women's football was banned and protesting games. Um, so the FA have said that there's going to be a significant increase but haven't actually said how much it'll be yet. Right now, the Women's FA Cup winner gets £25,000 
compared to £1.8 million for the men's winner. The FA did add that the women's competition doesn't yet drive commercial revenue to fund prize money growth, which I think we can all guess at. For me, Katie, I'm almost not a fan of comparing prize pot for the winner versus prize pot for the winner. That almost isn't the issue for me. For me, Mm -hmm. the issue is, as we were speaking to Marianne Spacey earlier, teams lower down are having to pay out just just to play in the FA Cup. And that means for a lower tier side, they may spend revenue they need playing league games just to be able to play in the FA Cup. And that's the really wrong bit for me. That is, you know, that the, the money needs to filter down, doesn't it? It needs to help the, the clubs below, you know. But I think raising the prize money gives more clubs incentive as well, doesn't it, to do want to do well and want to keep progressing. It's it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because there's a, there's a long way to go within the women's game, is there, as we all know. But I think, you know, everything we can get, every little progression that we can make, you know, whether it's raising the prize money, whether it's filtering money down to help clubs below so that they get better in the leagues below. Listen, we just have to keep pushing. What do you think about this, Linz? Is it all about the prize money and having that kind of marquee big money prize at the top? Well, you and Marianne both have said the same point, which is that you don't think it should cost teams money to be part of that competition. But I just think that's a given anyway. It's ridiculous that that's even a situation. I want more than that. I agree with you about the comparison. And the FA have got a point, I suppose, at the moment in terms of driving commercial revenue, because we're still building this brand of women's football at the moment and have that delay that we're trying to catch up. But there has to be, when they say significant increase, I want to know what that is. There has to be an incentive for these teams to want to do well. So if you're going to come back to Katie's earlier point about, you know, a a tier three side going on a run, maybe getting to the quarterfinals or semifinal, what is the point if there isn't a significant income from doing that? I I think there has to be a huge improvement when it comes to what teams win, certainly in the latter stages as well. From the quarterfinals onwards, there has to be a significant shift. And we could see an underdog then you know, rags to riches tail. They could actually actually end up with that money, which wouldn't be huge, but they could end up no, doing something and amazing. I'm almost with it. a fan of not increasing money for WSL teams and instead increasing money much further down so that teams aren't forced to make that choice. So uh, for me, with this extra money, however much it is, you know, bump up the minimum that you'll get for a win or for losing through the rounds so that it just becomes economically viable, full stop, and then put anything left you know, to make a big marquee prize. That sounds like the logical thing to do, doesn't it? So, you know, because they are struggling below, you know, and it would help to filter that money down and for them to, you know, keep building and keep progressing because it will make the women's game, you know, the structure of the whole women's game much, much sturdier. You're listening to The Athletic Women's Football Podcast. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get a third of a subscription right now by heading to theathletic.com forward slash WSL pod. You're listening to The Athletic Women's Football Show with me, Lindsay Hooper, Kate Borsay and former Lioness Katie Chapman. In other news, FIFPRO have released a report today on workload in the women's game, which uncovers a lot of issues that female footballers are facing. To find out all about it, I caught up with Sarah Gregorius. She's FIFPRO's Director of Global Policy and Strategic Relations for Women's Football, and who, in her career, played 100 times for New Zealand. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Thanks for having me. 
Absolute pleasure. This is a really interesting report. So 85 players involved in total, uh, I understand. And the key finding was that the underload of professional women's footballers is one of the most pressing issues. First things first, just explain what underload is. So we, we sort of have two very prominent terms that we use throughout discussions on workload in men's and women's football. Overload, so when you have a scenario when players are playing too much. And then actually when we looked back at the, the data that we had, we saw that actually players on the women's side were not, not experiencing overload and they weren't sort of experiencing sort of an average amount of games either. Actually, some of them were experiencing underload. So if you look at the type of competitive opportunities available, they just weren't enough. So that obviously halts the potential development of players across the board. I mean, obviously, you still have some uh, segments of the professional playing community that are playing at a certain level and a certain high number of games. But for the majority, yeah, we, we really saw actually that there is space for more competition. Let's put it that way. Okay, so not potentialized enough, I suppose, not not kind of working to their peak potential. Let's talk about factors, though, feeding into that underload. If we look at the WSL, for example, maybe England as well, what factors fed into that? Why are players experiencing underload? Well, quite simply, the size of the teams in the league. So we, we one of the major, major differences, and we try to stay away from like direct men's and women's football comparisons, but one of the major differences is women's professional leagues have far fewer teams, which obviously means there's far fewer domestic games, right? If you have 12 teams in a league, you have 21 domestic games. And obviously that number is much higher if you look at an equivalent men's competition like the Premier League, for example. So actually one of the key indicators to why players maybe aren't having as many competitive opportunities put in front of them is there just aren't as many professional teams in the leagues. And so that is a very obvious indicator and starting point. And then the other one is when you look at in Europe and really particularly around the world, international club competitions haven't really been potentialized, right? It's only UEFA and it's only Comnibol that have international club competitions available in their confederations. And obviously what's available in women's professional football in UEFA is obviously very different to what's available in men's professional football in UEFA. So that's another type of opportunity uh, that hasn't been actualized yet in women's football, certainly around the world. And so those are really, for, for us, the two contributing factors or indicators that maybe can go away to explain why there's underload in women's professional football. Really interesting. So not enough teams in the top league and not enough international competition going on for players either. This might sound like an obvious question, but I'm intrigued in case anything strange comes up from your answer. What effect does underload have on players? I think it's it's twofold. So it can obviously mean that they don't, they're just not exposed to enough competitive opportunities to really reach the potential or actualize their career pathways. So that can have a physiological development effect and it can have obviously a the ability for a player to sort of let's say commercially exploit themselves right to actually like play enough to be visible and be visible at a, at a high enough level to get sponsorship to get obviously whether it's prize money or, or higher club salaries because they're actually playing more that's the way that we see it can affect a player at an individual level and you know that's that's really something that also affects the industry so what affects the players certainly in our work we would argue that that affects the industry right so the industry is enabled to reach its potential because 
growth and visibility comes from maximizing competitions as well because that's where you attract fans, that's where you attract sponsors, broadcasting opportunities and the like. When we look at the fact that it's a basically a lack of games because the leagues aren't big enough in terms of the number of teams and then also there's not enough opportunity for competition internationally as well, perhaps there's not a lot on an individual level that a club or a player can do about that. But is there anything to support the fact that if a club turns around to you and says, okay, our players are experiencing underload and that's affecting their performances, what can we do? Can any of it be remedied on the training pitch? Do there need to be different structures put in place as to what a player does when they're not actually on the field of play, if you see what I mean? Well, I can speak from experience, right? I used to play professional football. There's actually not a lot you can do within a training environment that can replicate really a match environment, in my opinion. But what you can do in a training environment is put elite conditions around the players. So when I think one of the risks, and and that's why we had uh, an opinion piece by uh, the Chelsea FC doctor, Sean Carmody, because we wanted to understand more broad, it's not just about matches, right? We also have an issue in women's football around general conditions and standards when it comes to the games and particularly the training and match environments themselves. So what I would say to a club in that situation is look at the standards that you're setting within that club environment because when maybe potentially more games come into the calendar, what we might end up seeing is actually because the players haven't been given elite professional conditions, that when we do bring in more games, which will probably happen as leagues and and competitions grow they actually can't cope with the increase because they're not getting treated professionally in their sort of training environments so what I would say to a club is yeah understand that you actually can't replicate matches when you're sort of in your training environment but what you can do is work really hard to make sure that professional standards are in place so it doesn't feel like such a leap when more games do come into the calendar potentially. Is there then a disparity in workloads between teams some of the top teams in the WSL, for example, and some of the bottom teams, just because of what you've been identifying, the fact that perhaps the training facilities are different. They don't, they don't match. Yeah, I think it's no secret source to success. Like you see that the clubs that put in the investment tend to be the ones that play more because the players are just, they're just, at a different level, you know, they can cope with it. You, you see that in France with Lyon and PSG, the way that, that the professionalism around those clubs and how it's accelerated their success. So they end up playing, obviously, more games than some of the other teams in the league. You see it with Chelsea and Arsenal and Man City, the one the teams that have typically been in the European competitions and are playing a bit more and do occasionally get invited to these invitationals. So I think you, you, you do see the clubs that put in the proper standards start to pull away from the rest. Uh, we have a case study in the report actually of Birmingham City as well and and the same situation had at Real Valenciano in Spain too where when the standards slip, you know, there is a correlation between poor standards and, and underload. So if you can raise those standards, you'll, you'll raise the performance of your players and you'll actually get access to competitions that you haven't been able to access in the in the past. So probably you can see by the length of some of my explanations is everything's sort of tied together right it's it's not so simple as just looking at number of matches it's like what Mm -hmm. are the conditions around the players as well is there a suggestion that there should be the equivalent of the Europa League for example there's Champions League football in women's football but are we saying that a report like this you know thoroughly backs the suggestion that there should be another level of European competition as well I think 
a report like this shows why a conversation or a dialogue around that is really necessary. Like how can we reform competitions, introduce new competition formats? And I think obviously Europa League in, in Europe makes a lot of sense in that regard. If you look at how it would impact, obviously the, not just the number of competitive opportunities for, for players and for clubs, but also what it can mean in terms of those other discussions around growth and visibility and, you know, raising platforms to showcase the best of, of the women's game. So I think that's a really important conversation that needs to be had. I think, again, the idea of this report is to bring some very hard factual evidence to those types of conversations to say, like, look, actually, one of the things that wouldn't hold you back from introducing this type of competition is workload because there is space in the calendar mm. for players to have more competitive opportunities. Sure. Dr. Sean Kamodi, as you said, uh, Chelsea FC's medical doctor, he's raised some really interesting points about increased load on players due to COVID and growing social media pressure as well. He also talks about players only having access to strength and conditioning training when they turn pro and how, you know, shorter contracts in the women's game could drive players to taking more risks, perhaps not disclosing injury or returning to play prematurely after injury just talk us through some of that yeah I think that goes to my point earlier about looking at sort of holistically what's around the players and what could be impacting their physical and and mental well-being I think it's it's a really important point that he raises around like the access to what we would sort of call professionalism so if your first opportunity to get access to like a proper like strength and conditioning program is once you turn professional then you have quite a bit of catching up to do in that regard. And that's how some some players do get injured in that process. And obviously that then impacts their ability to perform. And if you only have 21 games per season to really fight for your next contract because of the short contract duration, you can see how that pressure starts to sort of pile on top of each other, which is why players might potentially not disclose when they are injured because they, they don't want to lose an opportunity to prove themselves and continue on that professional career pathway. So I think what Sean's opinion piece is really good in framing, I guess, all of the fragility around what it means to be a professional women's football player in the current uh, context. And he does that really well. And obviously the research just backs that up because we know that that is a real feature in women's football, short-term contracts. In the past, it's meant that, you know, now Chelsea have Sam Kerr locked and loaded and she's doing phenomenally in the WSL, but she was one of those players that would play back-to-back seasons. She would go from the NWSL to the uh, league in Australia and and try and cobble together a full sort of calendar year of football, but playing, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere and then the Southern Hemisphere. And that obviously is not really sustainable in the long mm-hmm. term. And it's also not the type of employment stability uh, that can really help players to settle sure. and get into a groove. Just picking up on Sam Kerr, actually, I note that there's, a piece in the report that talks about travel as well, which is something we haven't discussed so far. You analyse how far players travel. Uh, Rachel Corsi and Sam Kerr travel the second and third most of all players. And the report talks about the need for business class travel for players, especially if more international competitions are put in as well. Apart from the obvious things like comfort, what's so important about business class, about making sure that players travel responsibly? it really just comes down to the physiological benefits. So the ability to lie flat and what that can actually mean for your rest and recovery and ability to 
perform when you land. I mean, I played for New Zealand and I had a professional career in Europe. That type of travel and economy class, I did it a lot. And it is really, really tough. It's pretty cramped down the back of the plane. And you have a totally different experience when you have the ability to lie down on a flight and actually get quality rest. It is obviously about the travel, but, you know, for a player like Sam, for players like Rachel, they have a, a club game on a weekend. They maybe travel on a Monday. So they don't have a lot of rest and recovery time between playing and travel. And then they're expected to perform when they get off the plane at the other end, usually within about sometimes 72 hours. So if you are not providing maximal sort of benefit, not, not even so much benefits, but maximal opportunity to perform at either end, you're just going to impact the performance and not even the performance, but actually just the physiological well-being of the player. So people see business class as like a luxury, but actually it is a key performance need. Uh, particularly if you think of a player like Sam who has pressure when she plays for Australia and when she plays for Chelsea to really lead the line and, and deliver. If you are not providing her the ingredients to do so, then she's not going to be able to do that, which will obviously have a detrimental effect on club and country. Mm. Just out of interest, uh, the players that you were working with, did anyone work to their kind of optimal load? Was anyone Did anyone strike that balance of not being overloaded and not suffering from underload? It's funny you ask that. We have this conversation a lot about what an ideal number would be. And it's actually really difficult to arrive at one because there's so much more around that. Like you mentioned, the travel and conditions at club and the type of training and match environments. So I wouldn't, I'm not going to prescribe a number, right? But the player with the highest amount of minutes and appearances in the sample overall was Alexia Patelis. And obviously oh, interesting. She's, she's, some, <laughs> she's some type of player, right? And she yeah. actually has across the three seasons, the highest workload, particularly in the 2020-2021 season. And a really interesting characteristic about that season is it was the first time that the Spanish League had 18 teams. So she had more domestic club football than any Barcelona particularly had yeah, more really domestic club football. So that, I don't have a magic number. We don't <laughs> sort of do that. But if you look at the type of players that are reaching, I suppose, the top of that sample, yeah, it's Patelis for Barcelona. Now that's a good sample to work to, isn't it? I think in terms of, well, the size of the league, but also the awards and what Patelis has picked up. Talking of awards, the FIFA Pro World Eleven was quite controversial really because there were some players on there that hadn't had a lot of playtime. And I wonder whether that's kind of thrown into the fact that that actually many of our top flight players and, and, and you know, also us as kind of, you know, punters don't, don't have enough access to be able to watch games, watch players around the world. There's limited access to because there's not enough international tournaments. We've already talked about that. Do you think that that, that, that was why the World Eleven was so controversial or is there anything else that we can point to there that there you know seemed to be a fine list of names there but not necessarily everyone on that list had necessarily played as much as the others it felt a little bit like it was more about name recognition on some levels in some cases I have an inherent interest to watch women's football right I love it and I work in it and I struggle to find the matches right and to get a full understanding of who is playing where and who's playing well who's leading the competitions in terms of statistics and form and that type of thing. It's a real challenge, even when you are actively searching for it. And it's 
a big part of my role, right? So I can understand if you're a very busy player who is time poor in that regard and maybe can't go out and access, find, you know, there's also geo-blocking and all sorts of limitations around broadcasting and visibility for women's football. That is a topic that's been discussed and will be discussed for a very long time. So there, there are obviously those types of limitations to access and visibility and the players experience that just in the same way that fans do. So I think for an award like ours where it, it is a global vote and it is the only vote where players do have an opportunity to vote with regards to their peers, right? And it's it's democratic in that sense. So I think it's really important that we keep and celebrate those elements and we celebrate the players that do make the award but of course I understand like with any awards list that there will be players and people who think differently who don't necessarily agree with the outcome but and yeah I I can definitely understand the argument around the visibility and things like that too but we all have to work harder in that sense like whether it's those who are in charge of distributing the league and and growing that visibility if it's the players themselves engaging a little bit more and i think the players that participate in it and win it you know full credit to them and and they fully deserve it because yeah it is democratic and everyone has an equal opportunity to participate in that regard well thank you so much for speaking to us addressing that uh, FIFA Pro list, but also talking about this really interesting report as well. And uh, if our listeners want to find out more, just search FIFA Pro's report on workload in the women's game and you'll be able to draw out even more fascinating points as well. Sarah Gregorius, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that was me speaking to FIFA Pro's Sarah Gregorius. Sarah mentioned contracts in there. And speaking of that, at the standard contracts for professional female footballers in the Women's Super League and the Women's Championship will now include maternity and long-term sickness cover. can't believe I'm saying this, but for the first time, <laughs> about time too. So this will start next season and means that any player going on maternity leave will be paid 100% of their salary for 14 weeks. Also, if players get injured, they'll get their basic wage for the first 18 months after they get the injury. It used to be six months. The new contracts also extend the notice period clubs need to give if they end players' contracts after injury. Katie, as a mum, uh, did you get any kind of maternity benefit? No, unfortunately. <laughs> no. But you know what? It's, it's sad to hear that it's only just now that we're talking about this. It really is, you know, because we are females and we're professional athletes and for that not to be part of a women, a woman's contract is, uh, I'm shocked. I am shocked. But, you know, I've been, I've been through it. <laughs> you have been through it. And listening to that for you, how much easier would your professional life have been as a, as a footballer had you got that? I think the hardest part is for me is that obviously once I got pregnant and I didn't play anymore, I didn't get paid. <laughs> so you know, that was the hardest part about it. It was like you, you were punished for being pregnant or for wanting to have a child, which was, you know, it was hard because us as women, we should be able to choose when we want to have our family. You know, it shouldn't be that I, I'm going to wait to the end of my career because, you know, my career might end or I'm not going to get paid, you know, if I become pregnant. And then I've now lost my job and lost my income. You know, that's tough. That's a tough decision. What, because... what did you actually do, Katie? Did you have to get support from other people? Were you reliant on other people helping you out when you did that? Yeah, of course. I mean, I continued to train throughout my pregnancy. You know, it wasn't as if I wasn't in the place of work. I continued to train up until probably two weeks before I was in the gym, still training. So I'd be in the best place to get back. And 
it's difficult because who knows? No one knows what's going to happen during pregnancy, right? Anything can happen. Any complication can happen. You know, who knows? It's one of them punts in the dark that you're going to have a baby. Are you going to come back? You don't really know. You know, you can mm. keep yourself in the best possible shape to hopefully get yourself back. And I was one of the lucky ones that I did manage to do that and I managed to get back to the highest level. But I think with the support, I think all I wanted when I played was just an understanding, people to understand that I'm a mum, I've got a child. Sometimes I might not be had to go to training and sometimes I might need to, you know, my child might be sick and I need to be at home. And that's what I felt that we lacked back yeah. then. You outed the FA to some extent, didn't you? Because you were centrally contracted, I think, with England, weren't you? And you pointed out then that even as a even as an England player, you didn't receive any maternity benefit as well. And I remember the coverage at the time, people just absolutely flabbergasted that here was this international without any maternity support as well. And, um, you know, rightly, you you created a few waves with that. Yeah, I mean, it was it was difficult. It, it was, you know, trying to juggle, obviously, being a parent and being away and making the most of that, being the best mum I could be and the best, you know, athlete. I could be and and represent my country and I just felt as I said to you I just wanted someone to sort of you know understand where I was coming from as a mum and as a parent but the funny thing is I've learned down the line is that you don't understand unless you are a mum <laughs> you don't understand mm. what it looks like to have a family and to, to be able to juggle and, and look after that side of it it's yeah I found that you need to be a mum to understand that. Let's take a look at some of the business in the transfer window then. Uh, Manchester United secured Denmark's Sina Bruin on loan from Lyon, as well as signing England midfielder Jade Moore and Ireland defender Diane Caldwell. Man City locked in Norway midfielder Julie Blackstead from Rosenborg. Arsenal lost Victoria Schnaderbeck on loan to Spurs. And Malin Gutt, who signed for Grasshopper Club Zurich. Moments of the Women's Super League with Now. You can watch the biggest moments from the WSL Live with a Now Sports membership. And this Saturday, Now takes you to Meadow Park as Arsenal host Manchester United for a lunchtime feast of football. And you can watch it all for just £9.99 by grabbing a Now Sports Day membership. To find out more, search Now Sports or visit nowtv.com. Coming up this week, it's the Continental Cup semi-finals. Chelsea face Manchester United on Wednesday and Manchester City play Spurs on Thursday. So all eyes on that one. Yes, some nice tasty fixtures coming up in February too in WSL. For my moment of the WSL to come with now, I've got my eye on the 11th of February, Chelsea against Arsenal. Now, it's a rerun, Katie, isn't this, of the opening day of the season. And that was the Emirates Stadium where Arsenal hosted Chelsea. Arsenal were victorious on that day. And I remember being stood pitch side. This is my first game for Sky. And looking at the team sheet and thinking, no Frank Kirby, no Sam Kerr. What on earth is Emma doing? Now, we know that Emma knows best. And now I've got all this belief because she is promising us that this is a team that kicks on as the season goes on. So this time round, it's her time, yeah? So Emma's going to give Arsenal a spanking? (laughs) Is that how it works? I'm sure she'd want to give Arsenal a spanking, absolutely. I think, you know, they're going to have the advantage as well. They're at home, Kings Meadow. They play really, really well at Kings Meadow. You know, the fans are great there too. But saying that, they've got a tough run of fixtures leading up to this game, haven't they? You know, they've got to play Man United in the Conti Cup before that. And then it's Man City, I think. And then they play Arsenal. So they've got a tough run at the moment. So I'll have to see how they fare coming out of those ones, I think. Kate, how about yours? Well, I've gone for something coming up this weekend on Saturday. Arsenal versus Manchester United. So we'll bring Arsenal into this again. Look, United have got a tough month ahead 
We've got Chelsea, Arsenal, Man City. So we're you know, talking about a lot of really important fixtures over this period. But the reason why this interests me is because both managers, Mark Skinner at Manchester United, Jonas Edeval at Arsenal, both in their first seasons with those clubs, Edeval in the first season, his first season ever in the WSL. And I'm really fascinated to see how they are going to set up against each other. I think this one will be a great one to analyse. But it's also got that added spice because there's a bit of movement at the top, towards the top of the table. It's fair to say that Manchester United have got the momentum at the moment. They're in third, Arsenal atop. It's There's just lots of spice on lots of levels for this one. So that's why I am all over Arsenal versus Manchester United. Is there something to this about creating the momentum and growing into a season? Because we have seen, we talked about Spurs earlier, Arsenal have had a bit of a blip. Yeah, absolutely. I think January is a month, it's a hard month for everybody, isn't it? In terms of anything. And I think, you know, coming off the back here of obviously having the break over Christmas, getting the team back up and running, start of a new year, you know, things don't always go to plan. But I think it's just, yeah, keep keep going, keep the momentum, keep building, keep, you know, trying to get the results that you can. Well, there are loads Mm. of other exciting matchups this weekend too. Chelsea face Manchester City at the top and Birmingham play Leicester uh, in a relegation game. That one, it's fair to say. We've also got Everton against Reading, Spurs face Brighton and it's Aston Villa versus West Ham. Any standouts for you there, Katie? Obviously, Chelsea, Manchester City will be a big one. But elsewhere, where does the interest lie for you? I think they're bottom of the table, isn't it? You know, they're they're, they're wanting to get points, aren't they, down there? And if at any game, you know, they play, they need to try and gain points from. So I think it makes it exciting down there. It makes some good games of football. It's exciting at the top and the bottom. That's been the beauty this season. I hope it goes all the way to the end as well. Katie, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Yeah, really good to have you on. If you would like to check out anything associated with the Athletic Women's Football Podcast, you can check us out on socials at The Athletic UK and at Offside Rule Pod. Don't forget to download, rate and subscribe. Leave a good review. Yeah, a good An one, exceptionally Emily. good review. <laughs> the best <laughs> review possible. And tell your friends about us as well. Yeah, we'll speak to you next time. The Athletic Women's Football Podcast is proudly partnered with Now. With a Now Sports membership, you can watch the biggest moments from the Women's Super League live. Find out more at nowtv.com. The Athletic.